It's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign for NPR. And we're here a day after your weekly roundup with something else for you to listen to, especially if you've got a long road trip ahead for the holiday weekend. This will be perfect. This episode is a deep dive audio documentary called Obama's Years. It comes from our colleague, Steve Inskeep, who is the host of Morning Edition and is also hosting this documentary. And Steve is here in the studio now. Hello, Steve. Hi, Tam. So where did this idea come from and, and what, are, what are we going to hear? Oh, this grew out of some discussions on Morning Edition, the program that I, that I work for. And I love your suggestion of listening on a road trip because it's a road trip. We wanted to find some way to capture the way the country has changed in the last eight years. And we decided to do that by traveling across the country, talking with people in different states, including people we met entirely at random. It's just a big road trip. <laughs> Sounds so much fun. It was actually a lot of fun. It was really great to go with our NPR team. And as we mentioned in the podcast yesterday, you interviewed President Obama this week for like the ninth time. Is that I think right? about right. Yeah. And the whole interview is at NPR.org. There is a gorgeous video of the interview. They shoot it so well. It's pretty amazing. The visuals yes. team. The president, you asked him also about his thoughts about how America has changed in the last eight years. Yeah, asked actually about his life and how it's changed, which is really the question that we put to people because people are not experts on politics, but they're experts in their own lives. And so in the end, yeah, we asked the president, how's your life changed? Well, everybody's teased me about how gray I am, and, and that's okay. Um, my daughters have That grown. picture of you and Derek Jeter, that was something. That was, <laughs> that was some gray. But go on, go on. I'm sorry. My, uh, my daughters have grown up. And you can hear his voice change, his daughters. When I came into office, they were, were so much younger than I realized at the time, I think. And uh, for them to be these amazing young women now, uh, that changes your life more than just about anything. Um, and then he went on to talk about his efforts to unite the country, to be a president for everybody, which, as we know, because we follow politics, has not been easy. Let's listen. I think of myself as a, as a, as a relay runner. Um, I take the baton. Sometimes you take the baton and you're behind in the race and you've got to run a little bit harder to catch up. Hopefully by the time you pass on the baton, uh, you're a little bit better positioned in the race. And I think... Uh, uh, there's a humility that comes out of this office because you feel that um, no matter how much you've done, there's more work to do. Um, but I think that there's a, uh, a confidence that well-meaning people working together can, uh, can change the country for the better. I've seen it happen. Yeah, you know, one of the things that stood out to me in your documentary is you go to this elementary school, and we'll hear this later, but you go to this elementary school where there are kids who their only idea of who the president of the United States is, is Barack Obama. They're eight years old, some of them, and so that's the only president there's ever been in their lifetimes. And the elementary school, should we give it away? We'll <laughs> give it away. It's Barack Obama Elementary School outside of St. Louis, one of many places we went. Is there any part of the documentary that to you is your favorite part? Uh, I think one of my favorite things to do was to talk to waiters and waitresses. We talked with customers we encountered in, in restaurants and bed and breakfasts. You spend so much time as journalists trying to set up interviews, trying to find the perfect person to interview. But it is amazing how often that the most interesting encounters are the ones when you just introduce yourself to a stranger and start asking him questions. And you discover very quickly that everybody has a story. You just need to listen for a little while and it comes out. Well, let's hear it. Um, this is Steve Inskeep with Obama's Years, produced by our colleagues at NPR's Morning Edition. And it starts eight years ago. Yeah, it begins with a big speech, an especially big speech that then Senator Obama gave back in 2008. Okay, enjoy and happy 4th of July. I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. It's fitting that we begin this outside story outside this football stadium in Denver, Colorado. It is the silvery building where Barack Obama accepted the Democratic nomination for president back in 2008. He made a lot of bold statements before that crowd of tens of thousands of people, and they include this passage. We, we measure, measure the strength, the of, strength our economy, of our economy not by the number of billionaires we have or the profits of the Fortune 500, but by whether someone with a good idea can take a risk and start a new business 
or whether the waitress who lives on tips can take a day off and look after a sick kid without losing her job. Now there's a standard to measure by. How are waiters and waitresses doing? So it's Aurora, Colorado. It's spitting rain. And we're at the Red Robin Gourmet Burger Joint. What's your recommendation between the bonsai burger and the black and blue? I really like the bonsai burger. The waiter is John Hoodie. He's 29, dressed in black. Can you afford to take a day off? Absolutely. Yeah? I can. Tell me about that. Well, I work two jobs. So I'm a bartender across the street over at Applebee's. So I open here and then close over there. Mm -hmm. And I work about 50 hours a week, but I can afford a day off. So you're doing pretty well then? Yeah. How have you done over the last eight years? Like it went from McDonald's, Waffle House to Applebee's. It's been good. Uh-huh. Are you living on your own? I am. Uh-huh. You got an apartment or a house? I have a townhome. Do you own it? The bank owns it, but I'm making payments. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks his home value is rising, and he's likely right. People are moving to Denver. They pushed up home prices, a big change from the Great Recession. Local unemployment fell from 9.1% to around 3%. So there you have it, a modest success story of Obama's years. Except one other thing. Do you have health insurance? I don't. Not through this job or your other job? Mm -hmm. Wow. It's really hard. Okay, so with Obamacare, from my understanding of it, I can't get insurance unless it's just astronomically priced, $400 a month. And you don't have $400 a month? Not that I can just throw out there every month. That's a lot. Now, people who don't have insurance are now supposed to pay some kind of tax penalty. Do you know mm -hmm. if you've paid a tax penalty? I have. That's one payment a year as yeah. a course of... Instead of 12, yeah. Yeah. Think of this hour as a reality check. We interviewed scores of people, some we arranged to meet, others we found almost at random for an unfiltered view. We couldn't address every issue, nor recount every political battle that Obama won or lost. So we were guided by what was on people's minds. As we travel, we'll hear music of the past eight years from places we visit, starting in Colorado, where we will linger a bit, as Obama often did. Today does mark the beginning of the end, the beginning of what we need to do to create jobs for Americans scrambling in the wake of layoffs. That's President Obama, and the year is 2009. He returned to Denver after his inauguration to sign the stimulus. It promised $800 billion to blunt the Great Recession. The law missed its goal to prop up employment, but the money did support presidential priorities. It's possible now, all these years later, to see where some of the stimulus money went. Like here, Denver's Union Station, which has been restored partly with a stimulus grant. You see several restaurants in this train station now, people sipping drinks at couches. And if I look through these arched windows, what I see in the distance are construction cranes, signs of a strong economy. Developers did the interior renovation. Federal money improved surrounding infrastructure. And commuters now spill off the trains. Like Patrick Kasika. He works in quality control for bottling firms, different than his job eight years ago. It's a setback from bartending, but... Are, are you serious? You're making less than you were as a bartender? Correct, yeah. This is an investment. I know I was going to take a hit and work up the ladder to better myself. Are you particularly better or worse off than you were then? You know, personally, I, I mean, I voted for Obama both terms, and I don't think it affected me at all, so... To be honest, it's just kind of next president. And if this man who voted for Obama sounds unimpressed, consider a man who did not. We stopped in a white office building. You ring bell for assistance? The reception desk was vacant. We did ring the bell, and the company founder emerged. Hey, Steve. Matthew Anderson, nice to meet you. Matthew Anderson, the kind of person Obama also mentioned in his convention speech. Anderson took a risk, started his own business, and has a corner office. Yeah, this is a... Uh a map of essentially the uh, surface and mineral tracks. His firm obtains the rights to real estate to drill for oil. We'd come to see him because last year a magazine named Anderson's company as the fastest growing in Denver. It's like the world couldn't get enough, especially the United States. We could not get enough oil. But by the time we met, oil prices had crashed. 
which explains why Anderson's front desk was vacant. He'd laid off the receptionist. We saw this morning Sandridge Energy filed Chapter 11. I think we're up to 70 domestic oil and gas companies that have entered into some type of bankruptcy agreement in the last half a year to a year. Has Obama done anything that has directly affected you or your business for better or for worse? Nothing for better. Not one single thing. Anderson admits his main problem is the market. Technology opened access to more oil and prices fell. But he thinks his president had a thumb on the scale because he knows Obama favors renewable energy. So where are you headed next? Well, we're interviewing some more people here in Denver. We were just beginning a 1,700-mile trip. We drove to Denver's Lincoln Elementary, and at the front desk, which is guarded by a bust of Lincoln, we got a pass to a classroom birthday celebration. Jeremy Simon, blue shirt, blue eyes, was about to turn nine. He was in a classroom crammed with books. Light poured in the windows, and two guests sat in the classroom circle. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell us who's here to celebrate your birthday with us? Um, my mom, Anna, and my other mom, Fran. His moms listened as he recalled big events of his year. Any other big things that happened this year? Wait, is this year the year that you guys finally got to be married? This was the year thanks to the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage. Anna is a professor, Fran is a researcher, and they walked us to their home after school. They live in a neighborhood of historic brick houses. Walk across their wide front porch and into their living room, and you immediately see their own history hanging on the wall, mementos of their time as marriage activists. We decided to get all of our news coverage framed. Yeah, so our house is sort of a shrine to marriage, actually. So they married in Obama's years, though the president did not aggressively seek that change. In that 2008 convention speech, Obama did not endorse same-sex marriage. Back then, he favored only civil unions. How much credit do you give the president for how much things have changed? We might be divided on this one. I don't know. <laughs> um, the president barely did anything. Jeremy thinks his parents did more. Though, as we sat at the dining room table, his mom, Anna, said Obama set a tone. It was so exciting to have a president, finally, who could even say the words gay and lesbian in a respectful way. And today, Anna and Fran say they get to be a married couple instead of marriage activists. Is this a weird way to put it? You get to be normal people now. <laughs> right. Yeah. You talk about, like, what, what are we doing with all that time that we had spent at the Capitol? So, yeah, now we're working and we're volunteering at the school and uh, back to living a normal life. If their lives became normal, we also met a Colorado man whose life is not. Hi, Tom. We are here. We're just right in, we're right in front of the theater sitting in our car, but we'll park and maybe we'll meet you right outside. Our editor, Rena Advani, called Tom Sullivan. He was at the Century Theater in Aurora, Colorado. Do you live near here? Uh, yeah, not too far. Actually, uh, my son lived a lot closer. How old was he? We were uh, 27. 27 yeah, it was his 27th birthday. Yeah, a birthday his son Alex okay. celebrated at the movies, a Batman premiere, where a gunman opened fire in 2012. 12 people were killed. You know, it was a midnight showing, and Alex at the time was working at Red Robin, mm -hmm. and uh, he had invited a lot of his friends from work. They were the seat savers. And so they saved their seats, then the midnight showing came. Midnight and the showing shooting came. was what time? 12.38. Uh, 12.38 yeah. a.m. Uh, of that party of about 20, how many... Uh, six of them were shot. Alex is the, was the only fatality. After that shooting, Tom Sullivan retired from the post office. You know, I'm that parent coming, you know, to go back to people and friends and co-workers that you knew that they can't. And people don't know how, you know, to even talk to you anymore. I mean, some of them will even walk the other way, you know, because it's just too painful. I mean, and, and, and they, they end up being in that, in that where, geez, I'm going to say the wrong thing. You know, I'm going to hurt him. There, there isn't anything that anybody can say. I mean, I've already heard the worst thing that I'm ever going to hear in my life. President Obama came here and spoke. Yes. A few weeks afterward? A few days after? Uh, it was two days after. What, if anything, sticks with you about what the president said? 
I mean, it's just, you know, you could tell he got, you know, he understood. You know, I, I could, I was talking to another father, you know, who had two children the same that I did. And, you know, we talked about our kids and, and we talked about, you know, them growing up and, and what you can prepare for and, and what you can't prepare for. You know, scripture says that uh, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. His speeches, after more than a dozen shootings, have punctuated Obama's years. His appeals for gun control did not affect a Congress that was concerned about gun rights. Colorado did pass gun measures, but Tom Sullivan wants more. You recall that couple who could stop being activists? Sullivan went the other way. He's running for state Senate as a Democrat, seeking changes that did not come in Obama's years. We've become numb to this. We've talked about this after Columbine and Blacksburg, after Tucson, uh, after Newtown, after Aurora, after Charleston. We're asking how America changed in eight years. In this part of the hour, we cross two Midwestern states. Kansas and Missouri never voted for Obama, but he visited several times. He spoke in the college town of Lawrence. Hello, Kansas! He had a meal in Kansas City, Missouri. I deal with a lot of tough issues. I am not going to decide who makes the best barbecue in Kansas City. And in a tiny Kansas town called Osawatomie, he brought up his Kansas ancestry. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Obamas of Osawatomie. That was a joke. But Obama's mother did come from another small Kansas town. The president chose that 2011 speech to deliver a warning. He said it was getting harder for Americans to reach the middle class. This is the defining issue of our time. This is a make or break moment for the middle class and for all those who are fighting to get into the middle class. Because what's at stake is whether this will be a country where working people can earn enough to raise a family, build a modest savings, own a home, secure their retirement. That was Obama in Kansas in 2011. Five years later, we arrived. Thanks very much. And as soon as we stepped off a plane in Wichita, we heard a story about struggling for a place in the middle class. We met Heather Gray at an airport counter. Hey, ma'am. Yes, sir. I'm Steve. How are you? She asked if we were storm chasers seeking Kansas tornadoes. We said we were chasing the story of the last eight years. How long have you been working here? Five years. And what were you doing before that? I uh, worked in a warehouse. It, it got uh, closed down. So was this a step up or a step down to be working for, for the rental car company here? A step up. Are you doing better or worse than eight years ago? Um, worse. How so? Because I get paid less than I did before. People are always talking about how they shouldn't raise the minimum wage, but 16 years ago I got $10 an hour, and here I still get paid $10 an hour. It's a questionable thing. What do you want to see in the next president? Um, someone who actually cares about everybody in a totality thing as opposed to just the rich. Do you think Obama only cared about the rich? No, I, did. I think that he was a good president, somewhat. Um, I think he was soft on a lot of things. Heather Gray went on to describe a side effect of having the first black president. She said political debates become racial debates, which bring out attitudes that are normally hidden. I went to Sam's. I'm with my daughter, and we got a grocery cart full of stuff. And these people were talking about me, and they basically said, oh, they take food stamps at Sam's now. And I, my daughter heard, and I heard, I said, don't worry about it. They're just stupid, you know, because obviously I must be on food stamps, right? <laughs> I mean, I still can be in a store, and someone can grab their purse when I'm walking past by as if I were a threat. That conversation kicked off a cross-country trip. We rented a car. We drove east of Wichita. The highway cut ruler straight across the plains. As in Denver, some of our interviews were planned, but many were unfiltered, pure chance. Like the moment we started looking for a restaurant and spotted a small downtown. It was an old railroad stop, Augusta, Kansas. We didn't realize until later that it was a town where Obama's grandmother once lived. On a main street of red bricks, we drove past the old theater. We stopped in for lunch at a restaurant called Sugar Shane's. Both waitresses were 19. Are you both from Augusta? Yes. Uh -huh. What's it like here? Um, it's 
a small town. So yeah. I mean, everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows everything. The literal stereotypical small, small town. town. Yeah. It's what it is. The few customers that day included Joe Garst. He let me switch from our table to his. What is it you're eating there that I'm That's keeping you from? open face meatloaf sandwich, and it's awesome. <laughs> Joe Garst wore a beard and a baseball cap. He said he'd worked 44 years for a Kansas aircraft maker. He left Beechcraft during the Great Recession. And when did you retire? I retired five years ago. Did you, this is a funny question, but people in manufacturing, you gotta ask, did you retire when you wanted to retire? Actually, I went at 62. They were gonna lay off my two bottom guys, and so I retired to save their job, and it saved their job for a year anyway before they laid them off. <laughs> His former company made private planes. They're an emblem of excess to many people. But to Joe Garst, a jet was a job, which he felt President Obama did not support. Obama once called auto executives tone deaf for flying corporate jets while seeking bailout money. Obama, when he, he had all of uh, the guys in where he just bailed out the car industry, and he'd give them all grief when they flew their airplanes from Detroit to Washington, D.C., and that's when it started. But he would take a trip on his airplane taking pictures of all the, all of the sights there, and you think, well, that's kind of a double standard. <laughs> so how do you think the country has changed in the last eight years? Well, it's not for the better, as far as I see it. There may be more people working, but, you know, they're, they're not having the higher-paying jobs. He says many of his company's jobs went to Mexico. Since Garst retired, manufacturing employment has partly recovered, but many old-style factory jobs, that classic path to the middle class, have not returned, which left us asking what kinds of jobs will replace them. It's a big world to walk through, honey. And if you got love, you don't need money. That's Martina McBride, who's from Kansas. During this hour, we're hearing music of the past eight years by people who come from the places we traveled. We're driving beneath low clouds, rows of them like ridge lines, upside down ridge lines. And here and there in the distance, we see a wind farm. There's a lot of wind in Kansas, and there's been a lot of growth in that industry. In fact, we're heading to a large wind farm right now. A real quick safety briefing. Oh, sure, that, and yes, then, sir. And then right. we'll get some hard hats and some glasses for everybody. Okay. We took a walk amid 111 windmills. They're on a hilltop in Elk County, Kansas. Each is more than 200 feet high, and cows were grazing beneath the slowly spinning blades. More cows than there are turbines. Our producer, Claudine Abade, tried to keep the wind from blowing across the microphones, and she recorded our talk with Matt Gilhausen. He runs a wind business. He was wearing his hard hat, which didn't seem necessary at all, but you want to be ready for crisis. He told a story of the 2008 financial crisis, which nearly killed his business. We went three years with no revenues from that point on. We did a major layoff at the company. We cut 30-some people, which was the worst day of my life. How do you stay in business when going three years with no business? We considered that amid the windmills. Gilhausen says he relied on Obama's stimulus. It provided cash grants to renewable energy projects. Finally, he developed this wind farm with an Italian firm. This man who once laid off 30 workers has now added 70. Probably not that different from many other industries that, that were, were in trouble. General Motors or whatever else. Yeah, yeah, so um, we're lucky to be here. Well, I'll tell you something that's on my mind. Like yesterday in Denver, we were talking with this oil guy. He's uh, involved in developing properties for oil drilling. And he feels the administration is against him, the government is against him. Yeah. Uh, and it does remind me of that argument about the government picking winners. Is that an argument you hear? That, you know, you're being favored when other people... I, I, think, every, I think all industries feel like the other guy's getting a better deal than they are. It was possible, as we drove on eastward, to identify the source of Matt Gilhausen's good fortune. It's not just that Obama favors clean energy, it's when Obama favored it. He signed the stimulus at the beginning, when he had a Democratic Congress on his side, when he could do more of what he wanted. Other people had to wait, like the family of Nubia Estefes. 
We met her as we neared Kansas City and the towns grew larger. She welcomed us onto a porch clogged with bikes and scooters. In her trailer home, she was hosting relatives visiting from Mexico. We were visiting because she wanted to introduce us to some immigrants who had come to the United States illegally. Those immigrants did not show up, which is when Nubia suggested a substitution. Her own family could talk with us instead. Though Nubia is a U.S. citizen, her husband is not. He has a steady job building home basements. They have two girls. What's that? It's a microphone. So you can actually talk in there? Yeah, you just You can? Mommy, it's a microphone. Wow. Maybe we could sit down and chat for a few minutes. Yes, for sure, yes. This is my husband. Uh This is my daughter. (laughs) And the the little girl is my daughter. And how long have you guys been together? Eight years, going on nine. Okay. And how long have you been in the United States? A little bit more than 13 years. So you came when you were a teenager then? Yeah, when I was 17. I came in in legal, you know. Basically, I swam the Rio Grande tried to cross the border. You actually swam the Rio Grande. When President Obama was elected, the Estefas family hoped for a new immigration law. They wanted a path to citizenship. Obama did not try for that at first, pushing Congress for health reform instead. The president finally acted on his own in 2014, and the family celebrated, briefly. Definitely would have helped us a lot. As a family person, uh, it's when there was a few announcements that he made, like for like DAPA, for the Differential for Parents yeah. of uh, yeah. U.S. Citizen. That was a big relief. Until it was blocked in court. Do you ever run into anybody who says, you're here without permission, you should go back? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, yeah. What do you say to them? I just don't listen to them, you know, because I'm, I'm here just for work and for my family and trying to live my life. When you get paid for your construction work, does somebody pay you in cash or do they no, give you a in check? So you pay taxes. Mm-hmm. But we don't have we, we don't, don't get we don't get the child earned income credit. Okay. So <laughs> there is one there is one our money, you know. <laughs> but we do what we we're supposed to do, you know. What we gotta do. Pay our taxes. Willibaldo says he's declared himself to the government. He received a taxpayer ID number. And with his wife's help, he filled out papers seeking legal status. They just sent me a receipt that they received our money. Where's the paper? Where did you put it? I'll get 670 $670? Mm-hmm. For a provisional unlawful presence waiver. It turns out there actually is still a path available to him, though it involves leaving his family, returning to Mexico, and taking a risk that he won't make it back. I wish you guys good travels. Thank you. Thanks for seeing us so late, especially. That night, we made it to Kansas City. It straddles the Kansas-Missouri border. We put up at the Phillips Hotel, an ornate pile left over from the Prohibition years. Kansas City is famous for barbecue, and we had some. But a different style of food is becoming more common. We found some of that at Paleteria Tropicana. It's in a strip mall in Kansas City, Kansas. The owner, Jose Luis Valdez, is considered a local success story. Okay, so I see you've got uh, tortas, a Tortas, correct. You've got a Cuban sandwich. Cuban sandwich. This is Mexican hot dog. This is Mexican hot dog. Mexican hot dog, you know, it's a traditional hot dog, but we include in like uh, beans. In bacon. You wrap it in uh, bacon. Yeah, in bacon, correct. The store is best known for dozens of flavors of Mexican-style ice cream. When we started the business, we brought this machine from Mexico. So we really want to keep our culture, how we made the ice cream. Valdez was born in Mexico and is now a U.S. citizen. He owns five restaurants. He plans to expand this one, taking over the space of a Little Caesars pizza shop that's closing next door. You know what we say, the Hispanic community is growing very fast, and that means every uh, Hispanic business is also growing at, at the same time with the community. That growing population has grown in voting power and Latinos voted overwhelmingly for President Obama. What do you think of how he's done? Um, I think, I mean, I'm really upset. Uh, He didn't make anything for us. And my understanding is he do more, um, how do you say, uh, 
Deportación? Deportation. 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 Yes. He more deportation than anybody else. And, and we're really upset about that. He has said that he has deported more people than many a president. Than any president, yeah. And you believe that's correct? And I believe that's correct, yeah. So what you've seen is a president who favored immigration reform but mm -hmm. didn't get it done when he mm -hmm. could have mm -hmm. and has actually pushed a lot of people out of the country. I think he used to us. Used uh, us yeah. is what you just uh, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used our boats. The best way to leave Kansas City is by train. We walked through its high-ceilinged Union Station. You see the backside of a city from the train tracks, the former Marietta Chair Company Wholesale Furniture Building. And then we boarded Amtrak. Thank you, sir. And we started for St. Louis. We poked along behind a freight train. President Obama's proposed high-speed rail network, including a line to St. Louis, was blocked by Republican opposition. Once we reached St. Louis, our stops included Barack Obama Elementary School. Good morning, good morning. Okay, so everybody's coming over to give you a hug. Right. <laughs> Principal Netra Taylor Nichols led us down the gleaming central hallway. Obama Elementary opened in 2010. How many kids are here? We have 401 students. Okay. And she says all her students, except one, are black. We visited some students in a music class. Decades after legal segregation ended, many communities are still effectively segregated. In a school hallway, we met with a man who thinks Barack Obama crossed that divide. Charles Pearson is the local district superintendent. The impact of seeing a black man in a suit every single day in front of cameras, the impact that's going to have has had on these children, it's immeasurable. I, I was doing training as a, I do professional development around parental engagement. I'm in DeSoto, Missouri, not many people of color there. I'm standing in front of a room full of about 50 people, maybe one black person in the room, the rest of them were white. These children came in, rushed in, and they froze. And then some of the teachers got up and placed them in their spots and then came back and then they were all in the back of the room whispering. I stopped the presentation and said, what are you saying? And they said, all the children rushed in and stopped and went, why is President Obama here talking to the teachers? <laughs> They were accustomed to seeing the image of a black man in a suit in front of people, sharing information, debating, and leading. That image of them seeing this man, that's something fresh. We are yet to see the impact of that. It's going to be profound for this generation of children. Because children who are eight years old, the only president they've seen is him. In a classroom filled with kids around that age, we found second grade teacher Lisa Woods seated at her desk. Does the name of the school matter at all to you? Yes, it does. How so? Because our school represents the first African-American president. So they're going to grow up knowing that they attended the school, that that was a big time in their life. We might never see it again. I'll be honest, put it out there. Why do you think you might never see it again? To me, we're going backwards and not forward. Why are we going backwards? Because of what's going on now with Trump and Hillary and... I've never seen things like I see it today. Did anybody see the news when the, the lady called the truck driver and he didn't help her? The tow truck, it was no. on the news. And he didn't help her because she had a Bernie sticker. And they were two Caucasian people, so no race issues. Mentally, where does it say we're going? Yeah. We're going backwards as far as it relates to current about people. Here's the way we've been asking how people's lives changed in eight years. We picked out speeches President Obama gave through the years, like his talk in St. Charles, Missouri in 2010. Hello, Missouri! He was defending his health care plan, which was moving through Congress against fierce opposition. Years later, we went to St. Charles and knocked on voters' doors. Do you have any opinion of Obamacare, one way or the other, the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, we need to repeal it. Other people favored it. But the most revealing conversations did not directly address the speeches. People told personal stories. The St. Charles man has been out of work for seven years. Or his neighbor, who's finally been able to sell a house into the rising real estate market. We couldn't cover everything in the last eight years, so we often let the people we met become our guides as we left Missouri and traveled on. From southern Illinois, we've now crossed the Ohio River. I'm on the south bank of it now, looking out at a barge, several of them being pushed by a tugboat. We stopped there for the night in Paducah, Kentucky. It was once a Civil War battlefield. 
Now it's a tourist town with its old brick buildings and the National Quilt Museum by the river. We stayed in a bed and breakfast where some of the rooms were adorned with dolls in baby chairs. And in the morning, over the breakfast, we met five other travelers who were in a cheerful mood as our host served up pancakes. Some of the travelers were heading south, others were heading north, and they were about to get on the road when we asked if they would take a few questions. They included Paul Zarzasti of Marion County, Florida. I'm actually a deputy sheriff. I've been there for 31 years. Mm -hmm. We have concerns with the way that the president is dividing the country. There's been some problems, you know, officers that haven't handled themselves correctly, and in any profession you're going to have good and bad. You're talking about these highly publicized incidents where exactly. uh, a white officer shoots a black man and right. Right, variations on that. And, you know, it's made our job harder for the president, you know, with his lack of support. Another thing that is a totally different subject is the illegal immigrants that are coming over receiving these benefits when our own veterans are having to wait to receive theirs. That bothers me a lot. In Kansas City, Kansas, we met an illegal immigrant, and he also complained. And his complaint was the opposite. His complaint was, I got this job where they're actually taking out taxes, so I'm paying taxes, but I can't get benefits. What do you guys think about well, that? I understand his concern, but at the same time, whoever hired him should be held responsible for that. I mean, obviously he knows that his employee is illegal. Some people also raise objections to immigration because they fear it's going to change the culture of the country some way. Is anybody here? No, we're all, we're all immigrants in this country. I am a naturalized citizen. My parents came here from East Germany, and I have, especially since we were immigrants, you know, I feel for these people, but I do agree they need to do it the legal way. That's Christiana Lemke, another of the five travelers. She sat at the table with Doug and Joyce Clark of Nebraska. Just within the people that I know and part of my network, uh, there's been a huge increase in uh, the amount of people that are going out and buying firearms, handguns, uh, ammunition, getting concealed carry permits, uh, things like that. They're worried that uh, you know, with the president signing these uh, executive orders that, that those freedoms are going to be taken away from us. And uh, I could just go on and on. I mean, I, I could talk all day about it. Are you a gun owner? Yes. Uh-huh. And so you're concerned about your own, your own firearms being yes. taken away. Mm -hmm. uh, on another level, we have our, our sons that are uh, employed, but we have a granddaughter who's three years old, and that's who we're worried about. We want to make sure that that uh, she has quality of life, that, that some of the quality of life that we've experienced. Even as they stood to leave, the travelers were still talking. And, and more people now, at least, are becoming more aware and getting more involved. Or at least right. voicing. Guys, Safe travels. If you're going to leave my country, if you're going to say it's free, gonna need a little honesty. That's Ben Soli of Kentucky, some of the music of the past eight years. Our travelers in Paducah reflected some of the conservative case against President Obama. Republicans have used arguments like those to win elections at every level below the presidency. There's another set of arguments about Obama which have drawn less attention. Those come from groups who critique the president even while overwhelmingly supporting him at election time. And we'll hear a sampling of those arguments as we continue farther east. We drove by a General Motors plant in Tennessee. Saturn Parkway toward Columbia, Spring Hill. Once nearly dead and now revived after Obama's auto bailout. Then we caught a plane to the East Coast, eventually arriving at the scene of a presidential speech in Maryland. To everyone here at the Islamic Society of Baltimore, thank you for welcoming me here today. Early this year, Obama visited a mosque, the first time he'd done so in the U.S. as president. I know that in Muslim communities across our country, this is a time of concern and, frankly, a time of some fear. Like all Americans, you're worried about the threat of terrorism. But on top of that, as Muslim Americans, you also have another concern, and that is your entire community 
so often is targeted or blamed for the violent acts of the very few. We visited that same mosque just after sunset. It's in a suburban neighborhood and easy to miss, tucked behind trees. But the parking lot was jammed. People were flowing into doorways beneath a red dome. During the holy month of Ramadan, hundreds of Muslims who fasted during the day came to eat and pray. You take off your shoes in the mosque. After the president's visit, people told the tale of a secret service agent who was said to have lost his shoes. We put our shoes on a rack, and we sat on a red rug with Muhammad Jamil. He's a retired businessman who leads the Islamic Society. He came from Pakistan to Maryland 45 years ago. He's a U.S. citizen whose son-in-law served in Iraq, and he's grown proud of his adopted state's history back to colonial times. The only state that allowed the Catholics to establish house of worship, the very first one for all women's college to be established, the world's very first sugar refinery, which is still working, Domino Sugar. So it's, it's great, you know, it's, it's, it's very rich in history. Jamil was gratified by Obama's visit to the mosque. He felt it offered a chance to educate the public about Muslim Americans. He also knows the center's relationship with Obama's administration is a bit more complex than a speech. The FBI comes to certain places and they say, do you know of anybody who's radicalized? Can you help us? Can you let us know what's going on? Do you hear from the FBI in that way? Yes, we do. Then there was another time when another young man that they had probably seen some postings on Facebook or something. So they came and they advised us. What did you do? Well, we sat and we asked the person. And uh, it was uh, one of those youthful indiscretions. What did he written? He had just written, he says, oh yeah, America is evil, they are doing this and killing all our Muslim brothers and sisters. So that was like a big red flag. Muhammad Jamil says he cooperates with these examinations, even though he dislikes them. Catch me if I'm doing something wrong. I'll put him in jail myself. But don't assume, don't be a thought police. If I'm paying the salaries mm -hmm. of these FBI agents, none of them was even born since I've been a citizen. I'm paying them the salary to profile me? That's ridiculous. We walked the neighborhood around the Islamic Society of Baltimore. On a single street, we met a Palestinian family, a Caribbean immigrant, a Latino man, a mixed-race family, and a white retiree. Later, we drove into the center city, which is majority black. And that was where we arranged to see a man who was in the news during Obama's years. His name is Kwame Rose. He told our producer, Ravenna Koenig, that he would meet us in front of the barber shop where he was planning to get a haircut. So this is a bustling street. Yeah. On a Saturday Barber shop, clothing store. I think this might be him. Are you Kwame? I'm Steve. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. He was walking with a limp. Nice he said he'd just been through surgery for appendicitis. And as he arrived on that block, everybody seemed to know him. in the barbershop, in the clothing store, in the Mexican restaurant, where we sat to talk. Were you born in Baltimore? Yep, born uh -huh. and raised uh, on the west side of Baltimore City. He's 22. He went to college for a while, but dropped out and was back in his hometown for the death of Freddie Gray. Gray died after a ride in a police van. As residents protested, some looted and even burned Baltimore shops. TV crews looked on. And Kwame Rose was caught on video berating Geraldo Rivera for his coverage. The video was seen more than a million times. You're not reporting about the poverty levels up and down North Avenue, but you're here for the black riots that happened. I want the white media out of Baltimore City until y'all are here to report the real story. I went from a person who was just voicing a concern to the next day the voice, my voice and those words that I spoke mattered. His sudden notoriety led to invitations for Rose to speak on college campuses. And this man who found his words mattered paid attention to the words of President Obama. Remember that white deputy sheriff who thought the president favored protesters? Kwame Rose thinks the opposite. What did you think when President Obama spoke about Baltimore? You know, I think he never experienced, you know, what it was like to be in Baltimore before the uprising. And then I also think, you know, he was speaking from a power of privilege. 
wasn't speaking. You know, I didn't grow up like many other people. I didn't grow up like Freddie Gray. I didn't grow up with parents who were on drugs. I had never been to jail for anything serious like he did. But at the same time, I realized that it was somebody that looked like me that was in a situation that could have happened to me just based off of the color of our skin. And I don't think President Obama at that moment looked inside the mirror and saw that there were people who looked like him that weren't as fortunate as he was. And he chastised them. What did he say that bothered you? He called us thugs and criminals. And you don't know the story behind each one of those individuals. I was one of the people he called a thug and a criminal because I was out there. I think the phrasing was, most people are protesting peacefully, Mm -hmm. and then there's a small number of thugs and criminals who are destroying things. Yeah, but even the notion to differentiate peaceful, like peaceful on whose terms? Like I said, when I was there, firsthand experiences watching people run in the stores, I didn't interpret it as violence. I interpreted it as a survival skill, a survival tactic. So did you find the president to be supportive? No, I, I, I don't think the president has done enough for black people. In short, this activist says he wants to change the system and feels President Obama has become part of it. Mr. White Man, I didn't know Freddie. Leave it up to you, I could have been Freddie. And that's the scary part. Two different worlds, but couldn't tell us apart. So we'll be fine. That's a song by Kwame Rose, who's also working on a music career. His dissent is a feature of Obama's years. Many members of racial minority groups once felt great pressure to speak with one voice. Today, multitudes of debates thrive online, which was on our minds as we drove up Interstate 95. That's the monster highway that's a main street for the East Coast. In Philadelphia, that highway passes blocks from the Liberty Bell. It also passes near the site of an Obama speech. He began it with the opening words of the Constitution, We the People. 221 years ago, in a hall that still stands across the street, a group of men gathered and with these simple words launched America's improbable experiment in democracy. Senator Obama was speaking in March 2008. He was a candidate then, forced to discuss a topic that until then had been partly submerged. And yet, it's only been in the last couple of weeks that the discussion of race in this campaign has taken a particularly divisive term. Obama's pastor had been accused of hateful speech. Obama condemned the pastor's words and said anger in the black community could be counterproductive. But the anger is real. It is powerful. And to simply wish it away, to condemn it without understanding its roots, only serves to widen the chasm of misunderstanding that exists between the races. In fact, a similar anger exists within segments of the white community. He said many white people don't feel especially privileged. They're under pressure from losing jobs or pensions and resent help for minorities. In that speech, as in the presidency that followed, Obama had to address the concerns of very different groups. So when we arrived in Philadelphia, we visited a man who must do the same. He works just one block away from where Obama delivered the speech. This way? A uniformed officer buzzed us in to Philadelphia Police Headquarters. You can just sign right here. Okay. Where we met Richard Ross. You've been police commissioner for about how many months now? Uh, five whole months. Five Feels whole like months. like five years. Feels like five years because it's a big job. This man in his white uniform shirt is an African-American leader amid a very diverse population, which is not easy. If you're white and you're very candid about some issues with race. You don't understand why maybe African-Americans are so sensitive about things. Sometimes you automatically get dubbed a racist, and that's simply not true. Mm -hmm. At least that's not always the case. And if you're black and And you try to... if you're black and you try to say, well, you know, there are issues that we need to address, you know, even in the black community, you are a sellout. Or some other words. (laughs) So You've been called some of those words? Absolutely, even recently at a town meeting. His department faces a debate that is emblematic of Obama's years. The American Civil Liberties Union reports the mostly white police force has stopped and searched black and Latino civilians far more often than others. It's fallen to this African-American police commissioner to defend the policy, while also counseling white officers to do better. You became leader of this department, and you'd been watching Obama as leader of the country. Have you learned anything from his example? Uh, Yes, one, and this is going to get me in trouble, but you asked it and I'm going to answer it. I think 
there are some people who believe that because they have an African-American president, he was supposed to be an African-American president only. He's the president of the United States, and as much as I am an African-American police commissioner, I cannot just be a police commissioner for African-American officers, for African-American neighborhoods. I think there is sometimes a notion where you're supposed to be that person that writes the ship in every way for people who look like you. Ross says people of color sometimes scrutinize Obama's words for signs he's leaning against them. Sometimes white people have done that too. Like I even thought it was somewhat unfair when people, you know, with the whole thing that happened with Trayvon Martin, that he spoke up on that. Um, He's just speaking about what life is as an African-American. I don't think he's trying to indict anyone else. That was never the way I took it. He says Obama's presidency has forced all Americans to wrestle with their perceptions. I have not told you whether I'm Republican or Democrat, and I won't. But I do believe that this nation will miss this president. I really do. Like it or not, he brought us through a recession. Like it or not, he bailed out an auto industry. Like it or not, he found one of the biggest terrorists that we've ever seen and dealt with in probably our history. And the list could go on and on, and yet they call him a weak president, and I'll never understand that. Philadelphia Police Chief Richard Ross, one of many people we asked about the past eight years. From Denver to Philadelphia, we traveled about 1,700 miles. We met scores of people. We should note here that some were simply living their lives, the people who said they weren't political, the woman who said her life was too awful to talk about. Yet we met many people for whom the past eight years seemed personal. Obama targeted my business. He's coming for my guns. He saved my business. Or he's a father like me. Surely some of that passion grows out of the policies Obama pursued. Yet just as surely some Americans were struggling over things that went beyond any single issue. History will find in these times something larger than a record of who Obama was or what he did. These times of economic crisis and social change have been a test of who we are. Hey, thanks for listening to Obama's Years. Again, there's more about the whole documentary at NPR.org, as well as video and audio of Stephen Skeep's latest interview with President Obama. As always, more of our political coverage is on your local public radio station. Write the show at nprpolitics at npr.org or send us a voice memo. I'm Tamara Keith. Happy Fourth of July. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.